Hebrews chapter 6. And uh, if you if you were hoping to escape the rest of the discussion of Hebrews 6 um, by skipping last week and coming today, I fooled you. I wasn't here last week. Rob taught last week. We're finishing it today. Um, uh, two weeks ago is when we began looking at chapter 6, and really this whole discussion starts at the end of chapter 5. And I told you, this is one of the most difficult passages. This is the, the, you know, the, the one that has spawned endless debates and discussions. What is this about? What group of people is this a, about? And, and, uh, and I, I've, I've taken now three weeks really to kind of get through it. We're going to get through it today, uh, Lord willing. But um, I do want to reiterate the importance of understanding certain things, particularly around this passage, any difficult passage. We have to remember, again, going back to the audience, who is this to? This is to a predominantly Jewish church, the Hebrews. The second thing is the broader purpose of the whole theme of the whole book. There are those in the church who are thinking of going back into Judaism, going back into the old ways. And the author, the whole time up to this point, has been arguing, making arguments. He's trying to attempt to engage their thinking here uh, to prove that Jesus is superior to anything the Old Testament has to offer. All the shadows and the copies and the types of the Old Testament that they've been holding on to, they need to let go of and firmly embrace Christ. That's why he said angels, yes, they're high created beings and they're pretty amazing, but they're inferior compared to Jesus. The message of the angels, they mediated the Old Testament law, pretty amazing, but Jesus' message is better with the new covenant. The Moses, the great deliverer of Israel, the servant of the house of of God. Jesus is better. He built the house. And then you have Aaron and the priesthood, and it's all inferior to Jesus because he is of a higher order, the order of Melchizedek. And that's what he's began to talk about, which brings us to the immediate context. He wants to talk more about the Old Testament types and how Jesus is greater, and he wants to use the subject of Melchizedek. But you remember what he did? He stopped. He stopped to say, but I don't think you're ready. Some of you are thinking of going back into Judaism, which tells me this. I can't go forward to these deep things because you don't fully understand the Old Testament. You don't know who they really point to if you want to go back to them, right? So you haven't grasped the basics. They should have had a firm hold on those things. So the primary problem that they had really is spiritual laziness. And he's warned that this can can lead to falling away completely from the faith. And spiritual laziness, is a, is a, it causes a regression in your life. It causes you to go back into childhood, back into infancy. And so remember he said that they, they needed to be taught, again, the first principles of the oracles of God. You had to go back to the basics. He says, I, I can't go further on because you're babes. You are spiritual infants. You're still in need of milk and not solid food. And so he finally, in chapter 6, verse 1, uh, went into the solution. And this is sort of what we began to take, look at last uh, two weeks ago. In chapter uh, 6, verse 1, he says, Therefore, here's the solution, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. The whole key of understanding this thing is that they have to leave something behind and go on to something else. And he says it's spiritual perfection, teleates. It's the state of moral and spiritual perfection. And if they don't do that, they're in danger of falling away. And the first point we looked at two weeks ago was this. It was the simple instruction, verses 1 to 3. And what was the simple instruction there? Well, we just looked at it. He says, leave the 
discussions of the elementary principles of Christ. That whole phrase, discussions of the elementary principles of Christ, is just two words in the Greek. Remember me covering that? It's first, arche, and discussions, logos. It's the first teachings about the Christ. Where in our Bibles do we find the first teachings about the Christ? The Old Testament. And he says, you need to leave those original discussions of the Messiah. You need to leave the Old Testament behind. You need to come and embrace Jesus Christ. And remember, I told you that this really is the first clue as to uh, really understanding this passage. He doesn't mention Jesus. He mentions the Messiah, the Christ. Everyone knows Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? I know I sometimes assume that, but Christ means Messiah, the anointed one. It's a title. So he doesn't use Jesus. He used the Old Testament title, Son, Messiah. In fact, he's very sparing with the use of Jesus. He only uses it 13 times in the whole book. And there are 13 chapters, and he doesn't even use it in every chapter. He only uses Jesus' name when he mentions the New Testament reality of the Old Testament type. So that's really the first clue. He's talking about Old Testament things. The second clue is what I've already mentioned, is that they need to leave these things behind. And remember the list we looked at last week. The list is in verses 1 to 2. He says, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation. And here's the list of repentance from dead works, of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection from the dead, and of eternal judgment. Those six things. And I asked you guys, looking at that list of six things, what is distinctly Christian about that list? I mean, Jesus' name is not even mentioned. Where is faith in Christ? Where is salvation by grace alone? These are Old Testament teachings. The Old Testament teachings that pointed to the gospel, well, they were not in and of themselves the gospel or part of it. And so I told you these are six, uh, aren't six basics of the Christian faith, and I think this is where people get tripped up. Not so much because of this, but because of the verses we're going to look at later on in verses 4 to 6. They naturally assume this whole passage is simply about Christians, and this, therefore, must be elementary uh, New Testament teachings that they need to leave behind because they're just immature. But as you look at that list, none of these things are really New Testament teaching. There's six elements of the Old Testament. Just a quick recap. Repentance of the Old Covenant, uh, sorry, repentance from dead works in the Old Covenant, and faith toward God in the Old Covenant. That was the Old Testament message. The soul who sins shall die. Turn from sin, turn to God. That was the message. But in turning to God, they had to do what? They had to maintain many works, didn't they? They had to, under the old economy, they had to have these temporary works going on while they, those things uh, they covered your sin. They sort of had temporary atonement. They did nothing to um, remove your guilt, to provide forgiveness. Um, you still looked at these things as things you had to do again and again and again. They were temporary. They were symbolic of something that would come later. So all of those sacrifices, rituals, ceremonies, festivals, all of those things were your demonstration of your faith toward God. But let me just ask you, is that sufficient for salvation in the New Testament? Can you have faith in God and not have faith in Christ? The answer is no. It is through Jesus we are saved. So these are elementary teachings that we should leave behind, yes? Yes, you should leave those behind. Look at the next two, doctrine of baptisms and laying on of hands. Remember that? Doctrine of baptisms. The word baptism, baptizo in, in our New Testament, 80 times it's used of immersion, of Christian baptism. Not the word used here. It's baptismos used here. It's ceremonial washings used here. 
And so this is referring to the Old Testament instructions of outward cleansing, not, not inward, outward cleansing. And then you have the laying on of hands. We looked through many Old Testament passages in Leviticus as to what that was. A person had to lay their hands on a sacrifice, and they had to, that symbolized your identification with it. That symbolized your transfer of your sin to the animal, and then you sacrifice the animal in your place to atone for your sin. It was the blood of the animal. Let me ask you, are those elementary teachings we should leave behind? Yes. And then with the last two, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. It's very limited instruction about those things in the Old Testament, but they're absolutely foundational in the New. You read the New Testament, it's, it's so rich in spiritual truth regarding uh, resurrection. You read 1 Corinthians 15, your descriptions of our eternal bodies, incredible stuff. Uh, we know much more about eternal judgment in the New Testament. Now, we certainly wouldn't want to abandon those things as foundational things to move on to something else, would we? So what we should abandon are the vague and limited teachings in the, the Old Testament about the resurrection from the dead and eternal judgment. So that's what we covered two weeks ago. We looked at those six things that they have to leave behind, and I said, well, really, those are six things that can't save you. The author now comes to issue the actual warning. We finally come to the warning itself, and we're going to read it, and it's verses 4 to 6, but I'm going to push on through, hopefully, verse 12 today. We're going to just go through the whole thing. So let's Let's read along here. In verse 4, it says this, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth, which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessings from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation. Though we speak in this manner, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you've shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this passage. And Lord, we know that it is a a, a difficult passage, full of rich truth, Lord, and we want to know the truth. And so, Lord, we just pray that your spirit would guide us into truth, Lord, that you would help us to understand these deep and important things, Lord. They're not meant to discourage us, but to encourage us. And so, Lord, just help us to grasp these things, open up our hearts to the truths that you want us to receive. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that there are really four main views, four main thinkings about what this passage is about. One of them is a, is a hypothetical view. Uh, one of them is a view that this is about Christians who can lose their salvation. If you've ever been in that discussion, this is the go-to verse. Another is that this is about Christians who don't lose their salvation. They merely lose their reward. And then there's another uh, that believe this to be about people who are pretend Christians, apparent believers. Which of it is these? And well, I, I think I would rule out hypothetical from the get-go. I, I, it doesn't seem to make much sense. I would wonder why anyone would respond to uh, a warning if there were no real danger 
And I don't think that's really highly accepted anyway. But um, I'm going to rule that one out to the begin with. But let me just tell you what I think this list describes before we go on to look at this. I personally think that this list is a description of the spiritual advantages of the Jew over the Gentile. And here's why. First, you look at the words that we just read through, things like enlightened, tasted, shared. To me, I look at those, they'll seem to parallel the experience of the spiritually privileged Israelites who fell away and died in the wilderness. And we saw a great example of them in chapter 3. They had all these spiritual advantages of, of a people, well, anyone could ask for, above any, anybody else. And yet they did not enter God's rest, we were told. I think another thing is that, well, I don't know how we do this, to be honest. We see it so easy. We read through this list and go, oh, gosh, wow, these must be Christians. But can you just look at that list again? Would you notice that none of those terms are your normal New Testament terms that you would use for salvation. We don't see born again. We don't see uh, regeneration, uh, justification, sanctification. We don't see simple things like you were made holy, uh, made righteous. We don't see saved. We don't see the word salvation. We don't even see belief. None of those things are there. The normal New Testament words we use for salvation. We see enlightened and tasted and shared And I'm going to make a jump here as well to say I don't think that this can be referring to salvation because if it did, then that means falling away would mean that Christians can lose their salvation. But Scripture persistently, and I will say persistently, teaches the opposite. I firmly believe that. And I, I uh, a long time ago, I made a, a, a list. I tried to limit it to a one-page list. It wasn't exhaustive, but all the verses I could think of and find to fit on one sheet of verses that uh, support the fact that a Christian does not have within himself the ability to maintain salvation. If he did, it's all based on how tightly I can hold, how good I can do. Um, scripture teaches the opposite. And I realized if I tried to read that verse, we would be here for a week. So instead, I found a list list by a man named Roger Nickel, who just makes it more succinct. He he basically compounds verses into one thought. And I I just want to read you this. And you can take it uh, for what it's worth. He says this, Scripture asserts that he who has begun a good work will perfect it until the day of Christ, Philippians 1.6. Scripture asserts that life even shall not separate believers from the love of God in Christ. Romans 8, 38. You read that list? It's life, death. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Scripture asserts that the golden chain of God's purpose is not thinning out toward the end, but that the very people who are known, foreordained, called, justified, what's that next? They're also glorified. Romans 8, 29 and 30. Scripture asserts that believers are kept by the power of God through faith unto final salvation, and for an incorruptible inheritance. 1 Peter 1, 4 and 5, and Jude 24 and 25, and 2 Timothy 1, 12. Scripture asserts that true believers are sealed by the Spirit unto the day of redemption, Ephesians 4, 30. Scripture asserts that apostates, people who left the church, were never true members of Christ because otherwise they would not have fallen away, 1 John 2, 19. Scripture asserts again and again that the new life in Christ is eternal life. What kind of eternity would that be which could be brought to an end in our own lifespan? 
Jesus asserts that it is impossible to lead the elect astray, Matthew 24, 24. He asserts that everyone who beholdeth the Son and believeth on him shall have eternal life, and he will raise them up at the last day, John 6, 40 and 54. And finally, Jesus asserts, I know my sheep, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand, John 10, 27 and 28. So, I believe people are free to obviously disagree on that. But I'm going to go on the view that there's two choices left for us. This is either aimed at Christians who are in danger of simply losing their reward, or it's the rest of the book, as the rest of the book has sort of pointed out so far, it speaks to those intellectual believers, those people who understand the gospel intellectually, but they've yet to embrace Christ. I'm going to let you decide for yourselves, but I think by the time we get to the illustration at the end, you'll see something clearly here. So let's get to point two here before we've run out of time. And that is this, the solemn injunction. Here it comes to us, the solemn injunction in verse four. I'm just going to take each of these one at a time and we'll look at what they could possibly mean. It says in verse four, for it is impossible, and I'll come back to that word impossible. It's impossible for those who were once enlightened. I'm going to look at that phrase, were once enlightened. That word enlightened is fotidzo, and it means to give or to bring light, to instruct or to give understanding. It's used 11 times in the New Testament. It has to do with intellectual perception of spiritual truth. It means to give knowledge by teaching. John's gospel used the word in relation to Jesus himself. You read John chapter 1, you see this word there. John 1, 9. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. Now that's about Jesus. And John, the, the, uh, John says that the, the true light, that's the word phos, it means the essence of light, which gives light, and that's our word, fotidzo, gives illumination, gives understanding to every man coming into the world. Now, can I ask you, is John saying that Jesus has granted universal salvation to every man who has come into the world? You know why I know not? Because of what the very next verse says. The world did not receive him. When you read John chapter 1. So if he, by enlightening men, gave them salvation, then John's lying when he says, but the world didn't receive him because he didn't give them salvation then. No, no, no. He didn't give them salvation. He gave them enlightenment. He gave them understanding. God has revealed himself, the Bible tells us, in every human soul, in every human heart, the word of God is written on our hearts. But Jesus is the full revelation of God. And the reality is that people, they can see the light, uh, they can be enlightened to spiritual truths, but they can reject it. And just as we see in the New Testament, when you read uh, the Jews seeing everything that Jesus did, uh, in the end, they rejected him. Just as the Israelites did, seeing everything God did, in the end, they rejected him. And so John 3, kind of going on with the theme of light, in verse 19 says this, this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. It's just a matter of what you love. So the Jews in our passage today being addressed here were only enlightened. This has nothing to do with salvation, my, my opinion. They had been exposed to the true life, absolutely. They have the opportunity to be saved, but they have stopped short of salvation. They have rested in enlightenment. In fact, it would have been a lot easier to say who were once saved. Why didn't he say that they were once saved? Or they had received salvation. He didn't say that for a reason. They were only enlightened. 
Look at the next phrase. They tasted the heavenly gift. What's the heavenly gift? Well, I'm going to go straight to the greatest heavenly gift that could possibly be salvation. They tasted salvation. People can taste the gift and blessing of salvation. You can taste that. You can have a taste of that. But you can have a taste of that without fully drinking it. Otherwise, how do you explain the parable of the soils that we looked at last week? Because the parable of the soils tells us about a seed that fell on stony places. And I'll remind you of what we looked at. In Matthew 13, 20, it says this, But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Oh, that sounds like salvation to me. Yet, he has no root in himself. But he endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. So notice the words being used there. He receives it with joy. And you would look out and say, wow, on the outward side, what I could see, the joy, I would say, that's a saved person. But can you see the root? No. Can you see that they don't actually abide in the vine? No. And so the parable tells us that they're scorched by the sun and they wither away. They were never truly saved. Why? They had tasted the heavenly gift. They had joy about it. But once the difficulty came, as it did to these Jews, they're being persecuted, remind you, oh, then it's no longer that important. I want to go back. I want to go back to what's easier. Look at what else it says. They become partakers of the Holy Spirit. For me, this is an easy one. I got to say, this is an easy one. Partakers is a word we've looked at many times at Hebrews already. It's the word, it's metakos. It means to take part in, participate, or the way it's commonly translated here for us is shared. We looked at it in chapter 3, verse 1. Believers sharing a heavenly calling. That's the word means. It's sharing something in common. It's used in 3.14 of sharing Christ. Can I just point out something? Notice that it doesn't say that they possess the Holy Spirit. Do you possess the Holy Spirit? You do. He's in you. It doesn't say he's indwelt, you're not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say you've received the Holy Spirit. And it says none of those things, but those are true things of us in the New Testament. It just simply says they are partakers of the Holy Spirit. They simply, part, they simply shared by association in the works and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Let me illustrate this for you. Any believer who walked into this church today, on any Sunday, but gosh, especially today, wow, they have partaken of the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit active and alive in this room today? I would say yes and amen. And if you're in this room today and you're not a believer, what you're seeing is not Kevin at work. You're seeing the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And you partake of it today. You're a partaker, whether you know it or not. And, and we saw this in 1 Corinthians 7. It's a very plain example given to us in the context of a marriage. You might remember this. In 1 Corinthians seven thirteen. it says, And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, so there's the wife who's a believer, husband is not, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. Why? For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. And alternatively, the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Why is an un- unbeliever uh, sanctified by the believer? Are they made holy? Are they just automatically believers? No, they're set apart. It's a, a consecration. It's a setting part of the home. It's not personal. It's not spiritual. It's matrimonial. It's familial because there is a believer in the home. And the ministry of the Holy Spirit is alive and active in every believer. And so in God's eyes, the home is set apart due to the presence of a believer. And guess what? It only takes one person in a household to be a believer for that whole household to be a Christian household. One. 
because the ministry of the Holy Spirit is active. And so we're told the unbelieving spouse becomes an unwitting uh, recipient of temporal blessings, of the grace of God that he pours out upon the household. They become partakers of the Holy Spirit. That, that's, that's it. But listen, when you go to the New Testament and you read about believers and the work of the Holy Spirit, it's told it's within us. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, it says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? I don't just partake of the Holy Spirit. He is in me, and he's in you. So they only shared in the Holy Spirit. And you think about all that they saw in the, uh, um, in, in the life and ministry of Jesus, too. Um, they've tasted the good word of God. This is an easy one as well. The word there is rema. It means speech, discourse, a thing spoken of. It's, it's used in chapter one where it says of Jesus that he's upholding all things by the word of his power. I love that, just by the boom. Um, but these Jews here, they've been exposed to the spoken word of God. That's all it is. They join the regular assembly. They, they have a taste of the truth. They, truth. they regularly taste it. There's people today that regularly uh, uh, taste the, the truth of God's word. The Jews in the wilderness, they, boy, they, they heard God speak. And, and they heard the words of Moses. And yet it was not enough. None of those things were enough to save them. In fact, we were told that they have an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And the reason is they never desired the word of God. See, believers are told to crave the pure spiritual work of, uh, milk of the word of God, right? To crave it, to desire it. The prophet Jeremiah ate the word. In Jeremiah 15, 16, he says, Your words were found and I ate them, and your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. That's a believer who devours the word of God, who feasts on the word of God, not someone who's just been given a taste. They just tasted on it. They never ate it. And then the final one is the powers of the age to come, dunamis. That's the common word in New Testament for miracles. And we already know the truth of this. We saw this earlier in chapter 2 that they had tasted of miracles in this church. Chapter 2 reminds us that the church was founded by those who heard uh, Christ themselves. And God bore witness, we were told, both with signs and wonders, with various, various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. That was back in chapter 2, verse 4. And it's really not unlike their ancestors in the wilderness, right? Who, who, who witnessed the powers of the age to come firsthand. Of the Jews, think about all the Jews witnessed with miracles of Jesus on earth. I mean incredible. Blind people, they see. Lame people, they walk. Dead people come out of the graves. Is that the power of the age to come? Yes. There's going to be a worldwide resurrection, brother and sister. (laughs) That is the future. They're given a glimpse of, of all those things. They've seen some of that at work. They've tasted of those things. Here's the whole point. The Jews had the greatest spiritual advantages of any people on earth, and yet many of them fell away. And we have a same group of Jews here. He's I don't want you to fall away. You have such an advantage over everybody else. You've had all these things. And note what he says. He says back in verse 4, it is impossible. And then the list, right? For those who have had all those things, verse 6, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance. It's impossible. Some Bibles try to render this word impossible and make it less, less impossible. And give you a word like difficult. It's difficult. It's difficult. But can I just tell you, every time this word impossible is used in Hebrews, it's impossible. Let me give you an example. In chapter 6, verse 18 of Hebrews, it is impossible for God to lie, yes or no? Yeah, or difficult. 
Impossible. Chapter 10, verse 4. It's impossible that the blood of bulls and goats can take away sins or difficult. Absolutely impossible. The blood of bulls and goats take away. No, it's impossible. Chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. True. And here we're told it is impossible for those who have had all the spiritual enlightenment that you can possibly be given by God. If you fall away from that, there's no hope for salvation. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance, we're told. And I have no problem with the word repentance here because it makes sense. That's as far as these Jews have come. If it was impossible to renew them again to salvation, then that would tell me that they were saved. He doesn't use that word. It's impossible again to renew them to repentance because that is as far as those Jews have have come. They cannot come back to even salvation because they don't even have it yet. The Old Testament Jews, they experienced only repentance. That's all they've experienced with all the spiritual privileges that you get out of the Old Covenant. With the exposure that they had to the New Covenant, they're just, they're just on the edge of salvation, just right there. All they need to just is, is just go over the edge into salvation. They have received the fullest revelation possible. There's nothing more that God can do, nothing more that they can give them. And so what he's saying is that if you fall away from that point, it's just, it's over. There's nothing more. What, what fuller revelation can God give them? It's like those seeds that fell on the stony places that receives the gospel with, with joy and they spring up, right? If that initial excitement about the gospel, yeah, super excited about the gospel, you fade away from that. Can you ever come back to that excitement about the gospel? You've heard all the things, you, you've lost the excitement because there's a lot of initial excitement, isn't it? And sometimes we're worried as Christians when we see that initial excitement because we know what can happen. Oh, that can fade away because the Christian life is hard. And so we worry about that. If that, they fall away from that and they've learned all they can, they've seen everything, they, there's, there's no way to come back is what he says. He says, you're worse off than you were in the beginning. Look what it says, because they are said to crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. I think we can liken this to the initial excitement that people had about Jesus. They were amazed at his teaching. They tasted the good word of God. They were amazed by his miracles, evidence of the powers of the age to come. Declared him to be the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And what they do by the end of the week, crucify him. Put him on a cross. They had received the fullest possible revelation. Jesus among them, the Messiah in their presence. And yet in the end, they rejected him. When someone rejects Christ against the full light and power of the gospel, he or she has chosen their side. He's with the crucifiers is what he's saying. You have taken a side. Am I going to be with Jesus? Or am I going to be with the mockers and the ones that spat in his face and put him on the cross? This is a graphic visual, folks. And we're told that greater punishment awaits people like that because they know it all. Hebrews 10, 29 says, Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? See, they've seen all these things. They've understood the covenant, the spirit of grace. If you say those things, I don't want any of that. There's worse punishment. 2 Peter 2, 20 to 21 says, For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning, for it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered 
to them. Let me just tell you, you you really are deceiving yourself if you think that you can simply tolerate the gospel, that I'm okay with it, Um, I don't openly oppose it, so I'm safe. You may even support it by supporting someone in a Christian family and saying, yeah, but it's just not for me. You stay a spiritual infant, understanding the basics, but never really committing yourself to Christ. You think that you have plenty of time, saying, oh, someday, someday I'll think about committing. But James says, you don't know what is going to happen tomorrow. Your life's a vapor. You're here and gone. Listen, there's one direction, he's saying, there's one direction you can go from here. The inevitable result is that you'll fall away. And he says, once that happens, once that happens, there's no more opportunity. Now, listen. Do you see how all these warnings complement one another? The writer of Hebrews does not just completely change subject. Go back to that first warning. Don't drift away. When you hear the truth, anchor yourself to the truth. You have a chance for salvation, but you're just drifting by. You might just glide by your opportunity. Take it while it's there. He says, don't harden your hearts. A hardened heart, that, that's, an, that's an evil heart of unbelief. And if you have an evil heart of unbelief, that heart departs from the living God. Don't do that. He says, grasp salvation. Those people don't enter God's rest. And here he says, oh, don't fall away. You're at the edge of salvation. Don't go the other way. You've heard everything. You have the spiritual privileges. Maybe you're raised in a Christian home like David Farnham. I was raised in a Christian home. You have exposed to the gospel. You hear the teaching of the word of God. You experience sweet fellowship of the Holy Spirit. You've partaken of all these things through your interaction with believers. What a blessing you have. You have spiritual privileges. You've tasted of these things. He says, you're opportunity is now it's today don't fall away don't fall away and the closing illustration brings the whole warning to a close and i think it solidifies what his point really is look at this straightforward illustration this is not complicated he makes it easy for us verse seven for the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from god Those who believe that this whole passage speaks about Christians just losing their salvation, sorry, not the salvation, but just their reward, uh, appeal to this illustration for that, which I kind of find funny because I think it actually shows the opposite. But they would say, yeah, it's about that. It's just about losing reward. That's all it is. Okay, look at it. It's very similar to the the picture that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 3. Now, you remember Paul says that Christians were building as Christians, to save Christians, your, your works here on earth, uh, done, not because you need to earn salvation. You do it because you're created for good works, right, in Christ. But as you do these things, you're building with gold and silver and precious stones, or you're building with wood, hay, and straw, right? You're building with one of the two things. And all those things are going to be put to the fire. And in 1 Corinthians three fourteen, this is what it says. If anyone's work, which he has built on it, endures, he will receive a reward. But if anything, anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. And so they look at this, this illustration about um, the thorns and briars and, and things being rejected as uh, just uh, someone losing their rewards. Well, let's see if that really is what the author says. Look at verse 7 again. It says, the, the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it. You have an earth, and it's, it's, it's the land, and it represents the people. And the rain represents the blessings of God, the gospel of God. And it, it comes down upon the whole earth. The gospel seed is is planted all over the earth. That's the image here. Now, look at it says, if the earth which drinks the rain bears herbs, it receives blessing from God. Okay, now look at verse 8. Here you have verse 8. It says, but 
If it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. It says, if the earth which drinks in the rain bears thorns and briars, it is rejected. It's rejected. It's the same refreshing rain that falls upon the same earth, but this earth produces thorns and briars. Notice that it is the land that is rejected. It says, if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected. The land. It's the earth. The pictures of the earth. What is rejected? The thorns and briars? No, it's the earth. But it's rejected based on the result of only bearing thorns and briars. And that word rejected, uh, adakimos, means not approved, unfit, spurious. It's a serious word. It's regularly used in the New Testament for those who are disqualified as believers. They're unfit. They're rejected. They'll be judged by God. Not their works. They will be judged by God. Paul used it of those who have a form of godliness but deny its power. And he, he likens them to these two characters, uh, Jonas and Jambres, in this verse, 2 Timothy 3.8. And these two guys are traditionally thought to be the two magicians that opposed Moses. And in 2 Timothy 3.8, it says, Now as Jonas and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth, men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the faith. There's that word. Rejected is what he's saying. They're rejected. Paul uses the word in his exhortation to examine ourselves. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he says, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified? That word again, rejected. See, I don't believe that this referred to believers losing their reward, but of the pretenders who ultimately yield no fruit. The gospel has come out upon the land. And will there be fruit? What we see is thorns and briars. And we're told that they're near to being cursed. And the end of those who is cursed is to be burned. And Hebrews 10 uses a very similar language. In Hebrews 10, 26, it says, if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, okay, the gospel has come, you understand the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. That's not about rewards. That Hebrews is not anywhere concerned about rewards. He's concerned about souls. And I think the warning is crystal clear and the illustration hammers it home. It's not an illustration, in my opinion, of believers losing their rewards. And let me just go further on that. When that life-giving reign of God's grace falls out upon the world, it should produce fruit in people's life. And if it doesn't, there's a, there's a curse. And I looked at this parable of the soils. I've mentioned it a couple times. There's something you need to know about the parable of the soils. And all those parables, they're called the mystery parables. They're called the mystery parables because they explain the mystery of the kingdom of heaven. If you go back to those and look at those in Matthew 13. And that sower in the parable of the sower, he scattered seed on four kinds of soil, didn't he? He scattered on the hard soil, the wayside. He scattered on the, the stony soil and the thorny soil. But it was the good soil that produced fruit, thankfully. And in Matthew 13, 23, this is what he described. But he who received on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some 60 and some 30. Now, you're going back to the illustration, that land that produced useful herbs there were those who heard, understood, and produced. That was the result. Does that make sense? And listen, Jesus really said the same thing on the Sermon on the Mount, right? He said, you're going to know them by their, their fruit. He says, does a good tree bear good fruit? 
Bad tree bears bad fruit. Very simple. And so what he's saying is authentic Christian living produces genuine visible fruit. Okay. Now, this is why this all gets difficult here. Can we really go around judging people by their fruit? Can I go and say, I don't see fruit, not a Christian, out of the church. I don't see fruit, not a Christian, out of the church. We judge on two things. We address, address sin in the church and unrepentance. That calls for people being removed from the church. We address false teachers, and if they don't repent of that, removal from the church. But can I do that on fruit? Can I be a judge of fruit? And Jesus knew that this would be a difficulty for us. He knew that we would struggle with, well, how do I do this? This creates massive problems. Should we appoint, um, I don't know, fruit inspectors in the church? And they go around and investigating for fruit in everyone's lives? Reese says, yes, he'll be one. Listen, Jesus knew that we would struggle with this. And so guess what the very next parable is in Matthew 13? It's the parable of the wheat and the tares. He tells the very next parable to clarify how this works. And let me just read this to you. You can turn there. It's Matthew 13, verses 24 to 30. Another parable he put forth to them, saying this, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. Verse 27, so the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, an enemy has done this. The servants said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? Do you see that? You don't see fruits? Do you want us to go get them out? Should we go grab people out of the church who don't have fruit? Look what he says. No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. You're not a good judge of the fruit. You might take genuine believers out of the church. I don't want you to do that. So whose job is that? Verse 30, let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in the bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Guess whose job that is? Jesus' job. Now, can we address fruit in people's lives? Yeah. If I have a relationship with somebody and a discipleship going, I, we, we can definitely do that. But can I kick people out of the church based on fruit? No. He doesn't want us to do that. And so this is, I say all that to really just help explain this. A pastor cannot get up here and go, okay, so now I'm in this part. And so Joe, Betty, Frank, Bob, listen up. This is for you, right? We just can't do that. We address the whole church, and we let the Word do the work, and we let God judge the heart. And so if you were a genuine believer sitting in church, when this letter was written to the Hebrews, and you were hearing this, you may well begin to wonder, is the author talking to me? Am I? Am I you might start to question my, your salvation, right? Am I saved? Can I fall away? Am I in a dangerous position spiritually? Do I, do I lack fruit? Now listen, it's certainly good to examine ourselves. We, we, we should do that. But not to live in constant fear of whether or not we're genuinely saved. The, the author helps us through this. And I know we're a little over time, but Dave went a little longer. So can I take five more minutes and, and finish this section up? All right. I think the author issues a final encouraging note here that's meant to give confidence and assurance to genuine believers. He does not want you folks, and neither do I, to fear losing salvation. But at the same time, he extends hope to those who are in genuine danger of falling away because they have yet to cross over and embrace Christ fully, all right? 
He's writing to everyone here, and he can't just solely base it on the fruit. It's God who does that. And that's why those, those people are near to being cursed, and the end of those who are cursed is burned. And it's God who does that, not the church. So look at verse 9. We come now to a sincere invitation. He talks to two groups here. You'll see it. Look at verse 9. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. This is beloved, agapetos. It's used 62 times in the New Testament. The first nine times you come across it in the Gospels, guess who's saying the word beloved? God. This is my beloved son. All the other times you see it, it's of genuine believers. He's talking to believers. It's like he's saying, okay, but dear fellow Christians, listen to me. He's saying, I've been speaking in this manner, I know, but I have supreme confidence in you as a genuine believer. I have full faith in you and in things that are, that are um, concerning salvation. So this is to believers. He says, be confident. I'm confident. He says, you be confident. The word confidence persuaded here. Confident of what? Better things. Things that accompany salvation. What's the theme of the book I put on here? Jesus is better. And listen, this word better, we've only seen it once so far. He's better than the angels. But all through Hebrews, we're going to see all these better things, a better hope, a better covenant, better country. This is the first time it pertains to believers. He says, I'm confident of better things for you. Guys, this is absolutely key here. All of the things listed then are what? Inferior to salvation because he's confident of what? Better things. See what happens when we just lose the whole picture of the book? Oh, this is all, all, all messed up. It's all so confusing. It really isn't when we dig it in. All those things listed that we've looked at are inferior. They're not things that accompany salvation. But he says to them, I'm confident of better things that actually do accompany salvation. And they're evident in you. What kind of things? Well, come out of infancy. Come to maturity like some of these people. And look what he, look what he says in verse 10. For God is not unjust to forget your work your labor of love, which you've shown toward his name in that you've ministered to the saints and you do minister. God's not unjust. It's God who knows those who are really his and who are really faithful. And, and when messages of judgment come to God's people throughout scripture, you know what he always does? He always gives them a little promise to calm their fears. You see one in Malachi 3. I'm just gonna show it to you really quickly in Malachi 3:16. After he gives them this long judgment, then it says this, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, And the Lord listened and heard them. And so a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. See, the pastor is confident about the believers because God has always been faithful to those who are truly his. But he's also confident because of what he sees in their life. The fruit. He says the fruit. It's God who ultimately knows if our service is truly for his glory. But he says, God's not unjust to forget your work, your labor of love. That was the main clue for them. What persuaded the pastor? Their love, their love for the Lord, genuine love for the Lord. And they were ministering to the saints and they do minister. And that's what Jesus says, right? How will people know if you really are disciples? John 13, 35. They'll know you if you have love for one another. So that's key. He closes with this. The next two verses speak to everybody else in the church. He said to the believers, listen, I'm confident in you. Don't worry. I don't want to, sh- I don't want to rock your boat. Don't, don't, don't start fearing your salvation. I have assurance in you. I see these things active in you. But to everyone else, he says, be diligent. Be diligent. And we desire that each one of you should show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope to the end. Show the same 
diligence. Look at those true believers, he's saying. Be like one of them. You want to have assurance? He says, faithfully love the Lord and serve him like all these other people. He wants all of them to have full assurance of hope until the end. That word full assurance, pleurophoria, is most certain confidence. Listen, you want to be certain your faith is real? Look at the ones in the church that know their faith is real. Diligently pursue what they're pursuing. And then in verse 12, he says this, though you do not become, uh, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. There's that word dull. Remember, dull of hearing. He says, don't become lazy in hearing. They were sluggish and lazy in hearing. He says, don't be sluggish and lazy in believing. They rejected, uh, not rejected the gospel outright, but neither have they fully accepted it. And he says, imitate them. Imitate them how? In their faith, which was evidenced by their labor of love for the Lord. Imitate their patience, and I think this is key. Evidenced by their, their continuance in the faith, even in the midst of persecution. See, follow those who patiently endured the same persecution that you're enduring. There's the Jews as well, but they're, they're keeping on, keeping on. He says, do what they're, they're doing. Their faith is real. Those who fall away will ultimately be like those who receive that word with joy. And when tribulation arose, because of the word, they withered away. Let me just ask, is, is your joy in the Lord and his gospel, is it receding? Are you going back to infancy? Are you losing that excitement? Do you lack assurance? Follow those who are on fire for the Lord. Their faith is real. Are you on the precipice? Are you on the edge of salvation? Let me say, don't wait. Don't harden your heart. Don't drift away. Don't fall away. I pray that this will ignite people's faith into a real, lasting, and vibrant faith so that you too, people who have not gone over the edge yet, will inherit the promises of God. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word to us today. And I know I've gone a bit long today. I thank you for the patience of your saints. And I uh, thank you for your word. What a powerful word you've given us, Lord, in that you, you desire to see the fruit of salvation evidenced in our lives. And it's so difficult for all of us as, as true believers to really recognize sometimes true saving faith in others. We can't always judge by their lifestyle or by their, their fruits. Ultimately, Lord, you, you do that. You're the judge there. But you are the judge in all things. And we, it is before you that we will stand. May none of us be, be faking it. Lord, but one day the, the, the truth will be known. Is it rich, useful herbs that are being cultivated in our lives? Or are they thorns and briars? Was it all just a show? Was it all just fake? Well, many people can put on a good, good show. Lord, you desire that all would be saved. They would come to true salvation. And that's why books like this were written to encourage people who have heard everything, who had all the great spiritual privileges. Maybe there's people here today who have been privileged in their life to even have heard the name of Jesus, to have heard your word, to have been around believers, to to know the truth. Lord, prick their hearts. Today is the day of salvation. Draw them to you, Lord. Do not allow their hearts to harden, but may they open up to the truth of your word and receive the promises of God. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.